So uh, today we're going to look at Ruth chapter 1. So find a Bible and um, turn to Ruth 1. It's on page 222 of the Black Bibles in front of you. Judges ruled. All right, guys, tell us what you do in your daily life. That's it, very nice. <laughs> uh, okay, so the time when the judges ruled, that was a long time ago. Even when the book of Ruth was written and first read, that was a long time ago. Uh, the, the whole book, if you look at the first sentence, starts with a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Um, this was the time when the judges ruled, and that describes the time between Joshua and Saul in the Old Testament. So uh, Joshua was the guy who led them into the promised land, and Saul was Israel's first king. And between the two of them, there's about 365 years where there's not really much rule of law at all. The country's governed by judges, a series of judges. Uh, you might remember Samson, the strong. He was one of those judges. Uh, and also Gideon and Deborah. So those stories come from this period. Um, so, um, during the period of the judges, there wasn't very much faithfulness to God. There was no king, there was no rule of law. The last words of the book of Judges are, uh, there was no king and everybody did what was right in his own eyes. So it's talking about a season where it's pretty much anarchy. It's like a classroom with no teacher. And faithful men and women of God are hard to find. But here we have a family in the period of the Judges that's trying to make the best of it. All right, let's get to know them a bit better. Elimelech, what does your name mean? My name means my God is king. That's good. So that's a strong, faithful name. That's a faith statement by his parents. My God is king. Now, Omi, what does your name mean? My name means pleasant. Pleasant. That's beautiful. How about you, Marla? My name means sickly. <laughs> What about you, Kilion? Wasting away. <laughs> wasting away. Sickly and wasting away. So, um, we've got to assume that these weren't their real names. Uh, you can't imagine any parents, loving parents, calling their sons sickly and wasting away. Instead, um, these must be nicknames that the storyteller gave these guys later on. Bit of a cheeky storyteller. Um, so that's the family of Elimelech. Uh, they were all born. And they all live their whole lives in this little backwater town in the hills of Judea called Bethlehem. Uh, does anybody know what Bethlehem means? Great house of bread. Yeah, here it is. Bethlehem is the house of bread. Um, that didn't work as well as I expected. <laughs> um, okay, so there was, but there was a problem at the time in the house of bread. What was the problem? No, no bread! bread. <laughs> <laughs> there was a famine in the land. Um, and that was a big problem, obviously. So uh, Elimelech decided that what he was going to do was that he was going to leave. He was going to move his whole family out of the house of bread and leave. So off they go. Now, guys, this was a really big mistake. This was a bad move. 
Elimelech, whose name means my God is king, was abandoning his God and his king. Um, because here's what a famine meant. Here's what God told his people in his law. God said this, The land that you're going over to possess is a land of hills and valleys, which drinks water by the rain from heaven, a land that the Lord your God cares for. And if you will indeed obey my commandments, I will give the rain for your land in its season, and you shall eat and be full. But take care, lest your heart be deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods, because then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain, and the land will yield no fruit, and you will perish quickly of the good land that the Lord is giving you. Okay, so that's Deuteronomy chapter 11. So if there's no bread in the house of bread, then it can only mean one thing, right? According to God's law, it can only mean that the people were not being faithful to their God. God had built in a warning system to tell people if they were not on the right path. And it was this, this thing about rain. And if, if they didn't have enough food, they, they knew that they weren't being faithful to his law. And the solution was to repent and return to God. Um, but that isn't what this family did. This family bailed on God. They, they abandoned the land that, the God had give, that God had given them. And they ran away to Moab, uh, to a country that didn't know God at all. This country worshipped idols. Um, and uh, I want us to notice something at this point in the story. Um, I want us to look at this man, Elimelech, and the decision he made. And, and not be critical of him, but to realize, guys, he's really just like us. right? Um, because what he did is he saw something wrong in his life. He misdiagnosed the problem and applied an inadequate solution. And we all do that all the time. Um, when something goes wrong in our lives, we look for the cause of the problem in all kinds of places. And the last place we look is our own hearts, right? Inside of us, in our own choices. We want to blame everything else first. We want to say, my attitude, now that can't be the problem. My drinking, now that's not the problem. My anger, oh that can't be the problem. My procrastination, that's not the reason. There must be some other reason that my life isn't going the way I want. Something else that I can blame. And then, of course, when we do that, we apply a solution that's the wrong solution. Because more often than not, we are the source of the problem. Here's the word of God from Proverbs 19, verse 3. It says, a man's own folly ruins his life, yet his heart rages against the Lord. So, let's remember humility that looks for the cause of the problem in my own heart first. And the problem isn't always there, but it's, 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 it's humble to start looking there first. So, Elimelech made a bad choice here, um, and it gets worse. Right? So, they get to Moab, and uh, they selected Moabite wives for their sons. Here they are. This is Orpah, and this is Ruth. <laughs> and this is a nice double wedding ceremony we got going on. <laughs> now, this again broke the law in Deuteronomy 7, um, because God said that you should not take foreign wives for your sons, because they will run after the foreign gods. So Elimelech, whose name means my God is king, was not treating his God as king. He moved to Moab and settled there, and his family was there for 10 years. But then, there was another problem. What's the problem now? All dead. Oh. <laughs> 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 it's too late. 
at the end of that, and his two sons all died. Um, and neither of the new marriages had produced any children. So what a terrible position the women are left in now. Poor Naomi is here in Moab, and there's no men left to take care of her. Um, she knew that if she stayed here in Moab, she would certainly starve to death. There was no one to look after her. On the other hand, if she made the dangerous journey back to Bethlehem, there wasn't very much hope for her there either. She was too old to marry again, and she couldn't work her own land. But at least she had a little bit of property left in Bethlehem, and maybe her community there would remember her and take pity on her. So Bethlehem was the better bet, but only by a little bit. It was a terrible situation either way. So Naomi set off to return to Bethlehem, and uh, her daughters-in-law went with her. And here we can see how much love there was between all three of them. So Ruth and Orpah, think about it. Um, they're much better off staying put in Moab. They had family in Moab. They could go home to their parents. They were young enough to get married again. Um, and there were plenty of eligible Moabite men. Things were hopeful for them if they stayed. And they were pretty hopeless for them if they went with not only. But still, they loved their mother-in-law, which uh, shows that they wanted to be with her. So, but Naomi cared about her daughters-in-law, so here's what she said next. Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my, my daughters, as you pray on your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night, a hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they have grown? Would you therefore wait till they have grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me, for your sake, that the Lord that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Naomi's doing her best to care for her daughters-in-law here, and everything she says is true. Um, it makes sense. She's trying to care for them and protect them, and she managed to convince Orpah. So Orpah loved her mother-in-law, but she also saw that there wasn't any hope for her life in Bethlehem, so she left Naomi and returned home. She returned. Okay, That's a really important word in this first chapter of Ruth. It comes up seven times in the chapter. Uh, people returning to where they came from. And the question it asks us is, when you realize that you're on the wrong path, where do you return to? Naomi realized that she had to return home to Bethlehem, the house of bread. Um, but here Orpah returned to Moab. And after Orpah made this choice, she disappears from history. Uh, we don't know what became of her, whether she ever married again, whether she had children, whether she was ever happy. Orpah walked off the page of the story. She exited the rescue plan of God because she made a sensible and self-protective choice. Any of us could have agreed with Orpah here. It made sense. Um, but as the story of Ruth plays out, it becomes clear that Ruth made a much better choice. Do not urge me to Do not urge me to leave from following you. For where you go, I will go. 
and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. And may the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Great. We're going to pause here for a few minutes, because um, this really is one of the finest speeches in history. Um, it's one of the finest speeches in the Old Testament, and it comes from a Moabite woman. Um, you might have heard, as uh, Nicole gave that speech for us, um, that it sounds a whole lot like a marriage vow, doesn't it? In sickness or in health, till death us do part, I vow before God. And I think we're really supposed to hear it that way. Uh, the storyteller wants to make that point. In verse 14, he says, Ruth clung to Naomi. She clung to her mother-in-law. And that's the same Hebrew word that describes the marriage vow, uh, marriage union in Genesis 2, 24, where it says, therefore a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. Same word. Uh, Ruth is making a lifelong promise to Naomi. She's renewing the marriage vow that she made to Marlon. Um, and in doing so, she's demonstrating three of the best human qualities. This is why we love and admire Ruth. She shows love and maturity and leadership when she makes this promise. So first, Ruth loved Naomi more than she loved herself. She knew that Naomi had a much better chance of surviving back home in Bethlehem if there was someone there who loved her and would take care of her. If there was a young back to go to market for her and work for her. And that mattered more to Ruth than her own life, than her own future. Mm -hmm. So what she did in making this vow was lay down her life for her friend. Uh, Ruth also loved Naomi's God more than the Moabite idols, because she said, your God will be my God from this day forward. She'd seen enough of Yahweh from this family that she wanted in, that she wanted this to be her future. She wanted to know Yahweh forever. So that's the first thing, love. Second, Ruth's speech here shows her great maturity. This is a really mature moment in her life. Um, when we're ready to say, I promise for the rest of my life, no matter what, then we've become grown-up people. We've fully formed in our own personhood. So um, I prepare quite a few couples for marriage. And when we do that, we go through Tim Keller's book, uh, The Meaning of Marriage. And Keller says in that book, we are largely the people we become through the making of wise promises and keeping them. He says, only a person can make a promise, and when he does, he is most free. So as we see Ruth here making this promise, we see that it comes from a well-developed and mature person. And then third, uh, Ruth's speech shows that she's a leader. She's ready to lead. Um, a mature person who's willing to lay down her life and make promises and keep them is the kind of person that's ready to take authority and change the world. Um, this is the kind of person that the world desperately needs. So um, I just finished reading Andy Crouch's book, Strong and Weak. That's a book all about leadership. And Andy Crouch says there, leadership begins the moment you are more concerned about other people's flourishing than you are about your own. That's where leadership begins. And that's what we see here in Ruth. She's more concerned about not only flourishing than she is about her own. So this little speech is amazing because it comes out of this place of real conviction and because it shows Ruth's love and her maturity and her leadership. 
And friends, I want to say that every Christian, every saved child of God must, at some point in their lives, make a speech like this. You must make one. A speech to God that sounds like this speech, where you make a commitment and a promise. You will be my God. Your people will be my people. May heaven curse me if anything separates me from you. We need to say that to him, um, to Jesus. Um, that's faith. So uh, when Taylor and I look around this community for who's ready to be baptized or who's ready to lead, that's what we look for. That's what we look for, that kind of faith. We would say, Ruth's ready. <laughs> um, all right, so Naomi lost Elimelech, and she lost Marlon, and then she lost Kilion, and then she lost Orpah, but she didn't lose Ruth. And the two of them went on together until they came to Bethlehem. So off you hop. <laughs> so they got back to Bethlehem, and when they got there, Naomi was not only remembered, but she made headline news. The whole town was stirred because of her. All right, you guys have a part here. You're the town. Can you be stirred? <laughs> Everybody wanted to hear Naomi's story, and they asked, can this be Naomi? Can this be Naomi? Great, here's what she told me. Do not call me Naomi. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and now I've returned empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has put heaven upon me? Alright, so we're going to close with this scene. Um, there's a theme in this whole chapter about being true to your name, right? So uh, Bethlehem wasn't true to its name and it ran out of bread. Uh, so Elimelech wasn't true to his name and abandoned God as his king. Marlon and Kilion were sadly true to their name and they died very young. And then here at the end of the story, uh, Naomi gives up her name. She abandons her name and takes on another name. Mara means bitter. She changes pleasant for bitter. And I'm sure that we can sympathize with Naomi when she says this, right? She's had terrible life. She's suffered so much grief, so many tragedies one after the other. Um, it's hard to even imagine how much grief she's carrying. But nonetheless, I think we have to say that this is an ugly speech. It's unflattering to her. It dishonors her family that gave her her name. It dishonors her village who remembers her name and wants to welcome her home. It dishonors her God who's been nothing other than faithful and loving toward her. And most of all, it dishonors Ruth doesn't it? Because she says, I came back empty. As if Ruth counts for nothing. As if these worthless men that died in Moab were something. And this precious Moabite woman is nothing. Um, we have to suspect that surely Naomi would not have said empty if Ruth were her own Hebrew daughter. Or even if she were a Hebrew daughter-in-law. The fact that Ruth's a Moabite is what's making her say empty. Ruth is an outsider, a foreigner. But Ruth just brought more faith back into Bethlehem than left it ten years ago. And she was about to show more faithfulness 
to God's law than was likely to be found anywhere in Israel at the time of the judges. Mm. And God was not going to reject Ruth. Here we see God's consistent attitude toward outsiders who want to come in. If you cling to God as Ruth clung to him, God says, welcome. And in the end of this story, God is going to change Naomi's mind about Ruth. She's going to say empty here, and by the end, she's going to say, this girl's better than ten sons. And God's going to change his people's view of Ruth. Right now, they're going to say a foreigner, a Moabite, and by the end, they're going to say a national hero. So God can change the story. He can change the story. Think about how low Naomi was here, but it's not how her story ends. We're going to leave Naomi here at this low point, full of bitterness and grief. But as we read on, God's going to rescue her. He's going to totally turn this around. He's going to be faithful to her, however unfaithful she was to him. And we're going to leave Ruth here at this point in the story, in poverty, in rejection, in hopelessness. But God's going to change her story. He's going to welcome her. The last words of chapter 1 are the first signal of hope in this story. It says, they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. So the house of bread got its bread back. And God is on the move to restore hope to his people. All right. So we're going to stop there with that point in the story. It's unfinished. But if you want the end, go come back. Uh, next week we've got Ruth chapter 2. What I want to do today uh, is respond by closing our eyes um, and think through the scenes of that story in your mind. The scenes as they started in Bethlehem, moved over to Moab, and married, as the men all died, as the women came back, about Orpah's decision, Ruth's decision, getting back to Bethlehem and what Naomi said there. And I want you to think about those scenes and choose one that speaks to you into your own situation today. Ask God what he wants to teach you through the scene of that story. And in a few moments, the prayer leader will invite your prayers in response to you.